This is Purple Radio On Demand. Welcome to the first episode of the Gay Agenda podcast. This is run by the LGBT Association of Durham University, specifically the LGBT Campaigns Committee. We're going to be talking about the LGBT community in Durham and how that intersects with you know, other identities like race, um, like gender, class, disabilities. So we're really going to delve into that and all the subtopics uh, within that. And hopefully it'll be, you know, an interesting listen. So before we begin, I'm going to introduce everyone. So firstly, hi, I'm Anne. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, and I am the Assistant Campaigns Officer of the LGBT Association. Hi, um, I'm Shivani. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm part of the Campaigns Committee for the LGBT Plus Association. Hi. I'm Yash, uh, my pronouns are they, them, and I'm vice president of the People of Color Association. Okay, great. So now that we've all introduced ourselves, today's topics that we're going to hopefully, you know, mostly try to touch on all of them is going to be racialized dating preferences, as well as fetishization. Then we're going to touch on cultural appropriation, uh, tokenism, and microaggressions. So this will hopefully kind of just be a pretty relaxed and organic conversation um, about these topics. You know, it doesn't need to be too formal or anything. Um, and of course, the views expressed here are our own personal ones and we aren't experts or anything. Okay, so um, do you guys want to start talking about racialized dating preferences? I feel like it's something that, you know, a lot of people think is quite acceptable when it's just really not. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think racialized dating preferences. Um, uh, I believe a Vox article pretty much pretty succinctly summed it up by saying it was the last the last acceptable form of racism really like that was most prevalently acceptable and that like if a person can just say yeah I, I, I wouldn't date a black person like ever and like people would somehow still accept that even though it's it's really really messed up um, but yeah like I, I don't think it we like it's addressed enough how how widely accepted these views are, and it speaks it speaks to a very uh, a very very disconcerting part of society here because like anyone who says like I wouldn't want to be friends with a black person is immediately a racist, and I'm like, okay, what's the difference? What's the difference between that and like racialized romantic preferences? Because I I really can't see any. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I think that a lot of people sort of see it as just being like a harmless extension of usual dating preferences, you know, the kind of physical preferences that some people have, like, oh, I like, um, you know, tall people or like shorter people or whatever. People kind of see racialized dating preferences as just like an extension of that when it's just really not. Um, Vani, do you have anything that you want to say about this? Yeah, I think within um, like Durham culture as well, like I've seen this happen so many times, like as a POC myself, when I first came to the UK, it was obviously like quite a culture shock for like many reasons. But um, I was actually quite, I didn't really expect to feel as uncomfortable as I did in a lot of places. And I think it's just very natural to also feel less attractive as a result when you are a POC, because like there's such Eurocentric beauty standards and like, um, it's just the way it is. It's just the culture. And I feel like you're right. It's so subliminal and it's just something that people tend to ignore so easily or you know, they think that it's justified, that they're justified in doing so. So I feel like it's definitely something that needs more attention and that calls for, you know, like a more conscious route of action. Yeah, no, I, I'd hard agree on that. I definitely say like <laughs> being vigilant and like actively calling people out for it is something that, that definitely should be a thing or like actively educating people about it should also be a thing because like, uh, the number of people I have spoken to on this, um, <laughs> granted they come from uh, positions of quite serious privilege, um, they take it as a slight when you're like, yeah, no, that's a, that's a racist thing to have. And 
they completely fail to understand that well actually it is and it's something you need to you need to actively unlearn about yourself because when when you you were saying that like an entire race and the way they justify it saying oh well i don't like the this and this feature and characteristic but like you're lumping an entire race's character like first of all race like first of all the characteristics of a race are so diverse and like <laughs> like it's it's basically meaningless to say okay i'm going to write you off for having curly like for being brown because you have curly hair when like uh, like it's just not the case for like millions of <laughs> millions of brown communities across the world right so definitely it's about actively unlearning these very widely held beliefs that people have so and like when at the end of the day breaking it down it, it just turns into nonsense because they have no real justification for it outside of well no i just i just have racialized racist beliefs yeah and when you talk about like this these distinguishing characteristics whether it's like curly black hair or curly brown hair or there's more physical aspects to it for sure but i think that like accent is definitely one of them i feel like you're considered more attractive or you're taken more seriously if you sound white, if that makes sense. That's something that people also tend to ignore, but like you feel it everywhere. Like within a Durham context, the place where you feel it most is probably in seminars. And I feel like people just tend to take people who sound white a lot more seriously, or even in a lecture, like if a lecturer is a person of color and sounds like they're a person of color, I feel like people just tend to like, either con consciously or subconsciously just tune out a little bit and, yeah, you're right. Like, we do need to call people out for it. I think it's also really important that we call ourselves out when necessary, because, like, we all have so much unlearning to do. And I feel like there's definitely scope for, like, learning and improvement in all of us. So I feel like, yeah, like, we need to be really vigilant as well. And when we do see someone doing something that is, you know, whether it's slightly offensive and whether or not they consider it offensive, or whether, you know, whether we're in a small group or a larger group, I feel like it's always important to call people out for it. And we need to destigmatize calling people out for it as well, because it's really not embarrassing. Like, as long as you're willing to learn, I feel like that's, a, that's, that's good. That's good enough. Yeah, hard to agree. Yeah, I think what you said about, like, calling ourselves out, that's so important, because, like, even within a marginalized community, you can still have you know you can still have backward views towards other groups of people so like POC is like one group of POCs can be racist or discriminatory towards another group and like people within the LGBT community can be racist like they can be sexist and I feel like a lot of times people think oh because I'm oppressed I can't possibly be racist or sexist or ableist when you know that's just so not true. I also think that you know a lot of times people try to sort of phrase their racialized dating preferences as a good thing as a POC like I've gotten quite a lot of like oh you know you're quite attractive for an Asian girl or that kind of thing like you're quite fun for an Asian girl yeah yeah that's that's really awful stuff like people don't realize that that's actually not a compliment that's you know shitting on your entire race I guess and exactly this... yeah and this issue about like, like the intersections and hierarchies of like certain communities, basically excluding and having wild, wide, widely held like antagonisms and um, beliefs against other communities. Yeah, that's that's a lot more prevalent than we'd like to talk about. Especially like, like my Indian brethren and family. Um, well, and community definitely holds like very prevalent anti-black uh, sentiments and such so it's like again we very much do need to unlearn that as a community in and of itself like we can't we can't claim like yeah we're an oppressed community and then go and continue to oppress another community like again it's 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 something that we definitely do need to tackle in and of itself yeah i think that's why this campaign is so important because people tend to like again i feel like there's this hierarchy even within oppression obviously like people think that racism is worse than ableism that's worse than classism and neither one of them is like 
better or worse than the other they're all equally bad like they're all part of this horrible web of hate and i feel like people need to recognize that just because you know they're part of one oppressed or marginalized group it doesn't excuse them from marginalizing other oppressed groups yeah um yash i think what you said about like um so your family you know having views about black people that aren't the most progressive um I noticed that quite a lot, like within my own community. So like I'm from Singapore and uh, during the whole like Black Lives Matter thing going on in the US, um, I was so surprised to see like quite a lot of people just really having super backwards views. You know, they're like, oh, um, why should I speak up about, you know, the human rights of black people? Because that isn't something that concerns me. You know, I don't have any black friends. I don't know any black people, which is just so ridiculous. Yeah. And uh, I feel like I have experienced that a lot with people kind of using the N-word. Um, they're like, oh, it doesn't hurt anybody really, you know. And it's quite ironic because you think that someone who is a POC or, is, or who is LGBT would know how hurtful it is to use like racial slurs and they know like how harmful that is. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. I feel like uh, there's this like overarching like feeling in non-black communities of color, like speaking from experience of my own community, I'd say like, simply because like you aren't white, you feel as though you're entitled to things within the black community. This also like touches upon cultural appropriation and stuff in which like non-black, non-black peoples of color, like like some of my Tamil friends and some of my like members of like, yeah, some of my yeah, Indian friends very much feel like, okay, well, you know, I'm not white, so I must also be allowed to partake in the very exclusive, very, you know, in the very exclusive like aspects of this community, such as saying the N-word and stuff without like, without any consequence to me or like, like it's merely like I'm entitled to it and like you're really not because you know it's 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 something that has historical roots in oppression that like we as a community do not understand because like whilst whilst we have been oppressed as well it's not been to that degree and so like um yeah no there there is that feeling of cultural entitlement that just really needs to end from like non-black POC communities I feel like it's really interesting that you both brought up your families because I feel like, and this might just be me, but like I've noticed in a lot of Indian families that there is this age hierarchy. And I feel like that's true of like a lot of POC families. So when you speak up against something, like particularly the Black Lives Matter movement or whatever, like if there's someone from your family who's demonizing people like protesting on the streets and you say something about it, you're immediately again, not taken as seriously because you know, you're at university. So you're in that, like you're bound to be more liberal and like inadvertently like you know you're more left-wing and like it's just a phase and it's really infuriating when like people aren't really listening to you and you know yeah yeah no absolutely and also given like <laughs> the nature of like you know traditional Indian families like there's this idea of you know respecting your elders and such which I regret which I which I, like I get but also like that translates into not questioning your elders or like letting things slide when they say racist stuff or when they say bigoted things and you're like no you can't call them out for it you've got to you know you've got to be respectful you've got to accept it as it is and like that's just that is pretty problematic because um people feel because like particularly older members of the generation feel like well aren't getting as questioned from aren't getting these questions especially uh particularly from like the people who should be questioning them such as the younger generation who are bound to obviously be more liberal and such be more progressive and like understand why these views are incorrect and so like it's it's very much it's a real barrier to like educating older populations i guess because like you aren't taken as seriously and any anything that like any form of piping up against like your granddad or something is immediately seen as disrespect and not like you know being like hey i'm just trying to say that what you're saying is is wrong and it's harmful yeah i was just about to say that like 
in my school as well, like they really didn't encourage you to think independently because of that age hierarchy. So you're right, like a lot of older people just got away with lots of bigotry and there's really nothing that you could say about it. And you kind of internalize that because you like, and again, until I was 18, I thought that was just the way things were. Like, you know, you keep your mouth shut when you're talking to someone older than you. And it's really toxic, like, because you, like, it's so scary that you internalize so much of it because you just start to, like, ask yourself to just keep quiet when you're saying something that's definitely worth hearing. Yeah, I mean, like, so what I brought up about uh, BLM was actually more of a sort of, like, people I knew who were just like saying pretty horrible and toxic things on social media and just very like uninformed things um, about the protests. Um, in regards to like my actual family, um, I'd say that I'm pretty lucky to be born into, you know, a fairly liberal, um, bear in mind obviously like Asian, but fairly liberal um, family. So we've had pretty good discussions about like sexuality and like about race um, and, you know, I think that they actually are pretty pretty open so that's good obviously there are flaws in their thinking but it's not it's not the worst but I do think that there definitely is a kind of like sort of um not just in POC cultures I think kind of in general especially when talking about race there's very much the sort of culture of like it's a very taboo topic to talk about in like polite settings like if you're at a party or like you know something like just don't bring it up because you know it's very sensitive um when like you know it shouldn't be like it shouldn't be a sensitive topic race in and of itself like biologically maybe kind of not exactly as concrete as some people think it is but race and racial issues affect everybody and it's just a, like it's just a fact of life and like it shouldn't be a topic that needs to be swept under the rug um so yeah, for me, like until I was, I'd say until I came to university, I was like quite scared to bring up um, like issues of race. Like if someone was making fun of like another, another racial group or something, like I, I would generally be a bit scared to, to bring it up. But you know, now I'm like, that doesn't matter. Like if it makes me feel uncomfortable and if I, I think it's generally something like harmful and inappropriate, just like speak up about it. I think a lot of people need to sort of like unlearn the idea that race is this kind of like taboo topic we need to tiptoe around yeah do you guys want to talk a bit more about media representation and like what you guys think of you know whether because obviously a lot of filmmakers and producers tend to tokenize ethnicity when yeah you know like on screen so like i know that a lot of shows like television shows netflix shows tend to do that so like are there any that you think are, are particularly like good or bad like in terms of their representation or like anything you've watched recently um i think the horror genre is actually kind of doing bits in terms of like media representation uh for um pocs particularly like uh particularly like lgbt plus pocs like i'm watching lovecraft country right now and it it is oh i'm watching a, that as well with my housemates that is so, so good, good. It's so yeah good. it's just oh my god and i'm, I'm like halfway through it and I, i'm loving it and i'm also just loving the way that they um the way the representation occurs because obviously it's like it's set in um america in the 50s right or 60s one of the two <laughs> sorry and um and so obviously like it highlights the the, the struggle for civil rights and the nature of how oppressed and awful America was and you know reflects on how it still is but like it also shines a light on like black LGBT people during the uh, during during the 60s and black LGBT people during the civil rights struggle and all of that and so it's something it's like it's it's all of these stories which have historically which have been erased by by, by um the powers that be like and it's just shining a light on all of that and I just find it so fascinating and like just really amazing like that these uh stories that these um that these people who who very much existed in who very much existed and will continue to like be a major part of our history in spite of what like <laughs> in spite of the efforts to erase them like are and i just find it really really cool mm. yeah i mean like um so i'm not an expert uh for sure on like 
sort of cinema theory and like literary theory and all that. That is not what I do. I do anthropology, so I'm a bit like um, bones and shit. Uh, but my housemates were telling me as we were watching it that, you know, um, Lovecraft was um, apparently a big racist. Um, I, I didn't fact check that. I, I don't know all that much about it. But yeah, I thought that was just like really interesting because they're taking Lovecraft's sort of monsters and, you know, they're clearly drawing parallels between these, like, horrible monsters that literally, like, kill people and the white people and their, like, horrible racist behavior towards um, the black community in the show. And I thought that's just really interesting. Like, I probably couldn't explain that very well, but I just thought it was very, very powerful. Yeah. Yeah, I think in terms of, like, Lovecraft's legacy of just being an out-and-out racist and, like, reclaiming all of his works for the most marginalized communities. I just think that's super important. And it's, it's super important for like literary and cinematic genres as well, because they have historically been dominated by racists, like um, especially a lot of these horror writers who were like just out and out, like anti-Semites and racists, like um, Nosferatu was literally based upon like Jewish Jewish anti-Semitic stereotypes about like the the hook-nosed Jew that looks like that resembles like inhuman creatures and stuff so yeah I think very much reclaiming that turning it on its head is something that cinematically I just find fascinating but also I just think is super important for like the arts in and of itself because yeah we're making room for our own voices now and like you can take all your racism and you can do one so yeah that's uh that that's that's me being uh, a bit optimistic about the arts now so yeah i think it's good to like have optimism and have hope like um i think kind of like that's sort of what Hamilton was trying to do like I've heard that Hamilton has got some um, problematic aspects to it so I'm not gonna like lord it as like the best thing ever but I guess like that's also what they're trying to do with it yeah yeah I'm like again like on a more on a slightly more positive and hopeful note I really like I don't know if you guys have watched The Good Place NBC is The Good Place um it stars Jamila Jamil and I absolutely adore her so not at all biased but um but again like I think it's produced it's created by Mike Sher and again he just doesn't recognize ethnicity so um a lot of the characters like the four main characters sorry of the four main characters three of them are POC and you know you always tend to see um POC characters in such like, like they're always like either the best friend or they're never like really the protagonist or they're never really, yeah, like st- like the star of the show generally or like, you know, they haven't been in the past. But I feel like that's happening more and more now with like, yeah, because there's just, you know, there's just better production. So um, yeah, I feel like The Good Place is really, really like a really great example of that because you have Tahani, which is Jamil Jamil's character, who's um i think she's like pakistani if i'm not wrong but that's just not an important part of her character and i feel like you know like 10 years ago it would have been it would have been such a big part of her character but it's just not and it's the same with um with chidi and like with the other characters who are people of color like east asian or black or brown like it just doesn't really matter and that's not the point that you're drawn to is not their race because they're three-dimensional so like unlike other PLC characters in the past they're not written in a very one-dimensional kind of way that you know like you've got like the it's not like you've got the Asian nerd who's good at math or or anything like they're actual characters and that you like empathize with in like in the course of the show so that's a really good one. Yeah, um, you can definitely tell that I've watched too much TV because I've watched The Good Place as well. Um, And I I really like it. Yeah, I think it's really great. Um, Like just the concept itself is just so interesting, not not to get totally off topic. But yeah, I I think it has got lots of like good lessons without being too like cliche, like, oh, yeah, I know they're shoving a moral sort of lesson down my throat. Another good show that I wanted to talk about and I've told so many people about but not enough people have watched it is Pose. It's on Netflix. Um, it's about the New York um, like sort of Vogue scene and it follows like 
um, a group of uh, black trans uh, women and uh, you know how they have these houses where they kind of have like a found family and it's just so so interesting like um, their life and you know their struggles and that was like set in the 80s so um, it kind of covers the sort of HIV um, um, sort of like the whole chaos about that and the whole problem about that yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting that you talk about like the Vogue scene. Like, I, there's this other reality show called Legendary, and it's got like Sean Wesley. Uh, I think it's invented by him. And again, like, um, it deals with the underground ballroom community. And lots of people like inadvertently link the ballroom community to Madonna, but like, there's so much more to it. Um, and that really highlights that. It's a really great show. Just again, not to get off topic but it's a really <laughs> no there's a bit where they're talking about like um so in in, in pose they're talking about you know how madonna she kind of like you know she popularized uh voguing and they're talking about you know whether that's sort of a good thing or a bad thing and i mean like they're like oh you know it's good that voguing has now become more mainstream and people understand you know why they do what they do um and all that kind of thing um, but also it's been popularized and publicized by white women. So like, you know, it just kind of rings a bit hollow because it's been something that historically has been owned and has been like characterized by the black community. So it's kind of like, is that sort of like, is it like kind of like a form of appropriation almost? Yeah, it's the black LGBT community that actually you know, is behind it. So you're right, like the fact that it was popularized by a white woman um, is a little bit dodgy. Yeah, exactly. Because I feel like a lot of people kind of misconstrue like voguing and like like balls and a lot of the language as well that was used by the Black LGBT community. A lot of people tend to associate it with the LGBT community in general, which kind of gives, you know, white and non-Black LGBT people well, what they think is a free pass to use these words and to kind of like borrow the like fashion and the styles and the habits of black LGBT people. And of course, like, it's just a bit of a shame that the LGBT community seems to have co-opted a lot of these things without giving much credit where credit is due. Yeah, no, um, I definitely agree. Like the amount of like, again, the LGBT uh, civil rights movement in like the Western world started with a black trans woman throwing bricks at cops and like, the uh, the overwhelming whiteness of the queer community i'd say like overall and 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 in durham definitely is like uh, well the narratives at least because like there are there there are lgbt people of color here as is as is very clear so but like yeah the overwhelming narratives and dominance of them is it, it gets tiring and like uh, definitely when like things like voguing things like well the entire lgbt underground scene was co-opted by the white community and now and, and taken credit for by the white community it it it's 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 quite frustrating because like uh, not giving exactly like Anne said not giving credit where credit is due is is something that was is is something that is deeply problematic and it's something that is very razory and it, it does very much need to end and it, yeah it very much does need to end. I was just gonna say like about credit and like acknowledging things it's like it's so ironic and it's so like hurtful that a lot of the things that kind of make up what we think of as the LGBT community and like LGBT sort of behavior um, was from the black LGBT community, specifically like black trans people, but you know, in recent history, especially like black trans people really just have not been given a safe space within the LGBT community. Like they've been actively excluded and marginalized by the people who should, you know, be welcoming them and be accepting them. Yeah, on that very note, like, <laughs> I mean, last, the, yeah, very much so, like black trans women are the, are, are definitely the most, uh, one like if not one of if not the most marginalized uh, uh group of people in well anywhere really so like a clear example this election this election day started yesterday by a black trans woman being murdered in the united states the 43rd this year so like again it's it's just clear that like of all the work that this that 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 this um 
that these people have done for our community, they, they're getting so little back in terms of like basic safety, civil liberties, and like, you know, just the, the ability to not be killed while walking down the street. And it's honestly just so terrifying and uh, sad, really. And I mean, like on the point, you know, of, you know, because we're one of the topics we're going to talk about hopefully today is, um, well, or incorporate in is uh, fetishization. I feel like a lot of the time when black LGBT people are included in the conversation or like just POC LGBT people in general, it's always from a very like sort of sexualized or like fetishized kind of way. Like, oh yeah, you know, you're here because, you know, some people at least find you physically or sexually attractive, that kind of thing. And that's just incredibly hurtful. Yeah, I feel like it's really condescending. Like when people say, I love you in spite of your race or in spite of your sexuality or in spite of these things, it's like, it's almost like they're doing you a favor, but it's really not. So people really need to change the way that they talk about like just marginalization in general. Uh, because it can be quite patronizing when you say things like that because there's, there's obviously this power imbalance and like I feel like that's why appropriation like people tend to question why appropriation is bad like you know it's like this whole cultural appropriation versus cultural appreciation debate and um it's it's obviously because there's this power imbalance and like one of the groups is oppressed and and the other isn't so you know like using things and not giving credit for them is just very clearly wrong and it's really hard to realize when you're not on the receiving end of it but it is very condescending when it happens i'd say it's especially true in like the dating scene right like in terms of like people chasing for like uh people chasing for like specific people of color like yeah you're my fetish so like i'm gonna treat you like you're like this cool new sexual object that I found specifically because of the color of your skin. Or like even worse, like I, I know, I like I know of like some people who've specifically been dated by other people, by other white people just for like clout and stuff, like just to score political points. And I'm like, yeah, like it's, it's oh my like, God. yeah. And like, first of all, it's super obvious. Like we can always tell that like you're just doing this either for clout or just because or just because you want to fetishize us to like fucking stop <laughs> you're not you're, you're not sly you, you are very much not sly uh but yeah like it just it's it's so frustrating because like dating as a poc is is hard enough but like when you've just got these like freaking weird people just trying to chase you for the color of your skin or like like what culture you're from and stuff it just gets it gets really really um harrowing i guess and like daunting and like dating as an lgbt plus person is scary enough less the, let, let alone dating as an lgbt plus person of color and such but like just just adding more layers of <laughs> of just um i'd say you know shitty behavior and and you know it's shitty but like they know it's shitty behavior uh just it does not make things it does not make things great especially from a dating perspective mm, yeah i mean as an lgbt person you know you get the usual shit like someone who's dating you just to kind of like experiment quote unquote with their sexuality i mean like there's nothing wrong with actual experimentation you know with like you know wanting to explore yourself but it is important to you know not play someone, not string them along, and you have to make it clear from the start. But, you know, you get, like, shitty people that kind of just um, sort of use you to try out, you know, what do they like? What what are they actually into? That kind of thing. And I think that as a POC LGBT person, you get that doubly so, because you get people who, like, they're not only sort of testing the waters with their, like, what they're into uh, in terms of sexuality or gender, they're kind of like also trying to see like, oh, what race am I into? You know, do I like Asians? Do I like, like, um, do I like Middle Eastern people? That kind of thing. Like, just like, oh God, it's just so awful, isn't it? On dating apps, I've literally got people being like, what kind of Asian are you? Or like, are you Japanese? Are you Chinese? Like, why on earth does that matter? Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. It's, 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 like, it's just so weird, like, being treated like you're, like, a pizza, a buffet or something for people to try. 
And it's like, like I don't exist just so you can piss off your parents. This is basically what I'm trying to say. <laughs> oh my god, literally though, yeah. Like, and as you said, like I don't exist to satisfy your weird niche, like fetish or whatever. Like I'm an actual person, and my identity goes so far beyond like just my race or the color of my skin. Like, I. You know, I'm like a whole person. Like, you wouldn't go up to someone and be like, oh, you know what? I'm really into dating white people. I love white skin. Like, that's just, like, no one would do that, you know? Yeah, Yeah, just the fact that it sounds so ridiculous saying it that way proves how, like, that never happens. And if it did, how, you know, like, they would realize how bad that sounds. Yeah, no, definitely. I've literally had a man come up to me at a bar in Durham and, like, whisper into my ear asking me if I'm Asian and yeah it's actually ridiculous how often like how many instances of racism that you actually face at Durham because so obviously I'm from India and like I I wasn't I didn't really grow up around a lot of white people so I didn't really face a lot of uh, like I didn't really face too much oppression again in India because everyone else you know shared my racial identity but again like after coming here, I, again, like, Durham's not really considered a racist place. It's, you know, it's considered, like, really liberal and really good in terms of, like, you know, all these things, but I feel like, I feel like it looks that way, you know, from afar, and it definitely looks that way if you don't belong to any type of marginalized group, but the minute you do, like, you'll find so many people asking you so many questionable things. And it's like, do you really think that this is appropriate? Do you really think this is okay? Like people literally coming up to me in my college and asking me, or just like, you know, expressing their surprise when they hear that I, uh, that I study English lit. And it's like, you can't say that to me. (laughs) Like, how how does this sound all right in your head? That's just like a form of a microaggression though, isn't it? Like they're like, oh yeah, it's so surprising that you study English literature considering that you're not white. Like, my God, that's crazy. Yeah, Yeah, or even things like, oh, you're, I mean, I feel like this is like spoken about quite a bit or this has been spoken about quite a bit recently. Mm. But when people like comment on, you know, like your level of English and like your fluency in English and it's like, no, do you know what? Like my country was like colonized by you guys so the fact that we had to speak the fact that like our level of proficiency in English kind of determined how smart we were it just you know that's why it's not a compliment well I think that some people that I've met um it's just so interesting because they don't seem to have realized that western culture in general um has sort of become like the superior um sort of culture and like it's sort of like something that everybody should strive towards and it has been for like a long long time so like because of globalization more so like you know western tv shows western music um it's just all over the place like you i think it'd be very very hard for someone to avoid having like a lot of western influence in their life so it's very interesting to me that when I came here, they seem like some people seem very, very shocked that I'd seen Western shows and I listened to Western music, like, and I've eaten white fruit. Like, yeah, of course. Like, how could I avoid it? Yeah, no, definitely. Like, like, it's, um, it's really interesting, especially like, like, I'm not an international student. So people pick up that people pick up like, that I'm domestic from my accent pretty quick, right? But just beforehand, like, um, the microaggressions tend to get, like, it's also kind of a class thing, I guess, um, in terms of, like, like my accent's pretty urban, it's pretty, it's pretty uh, London, and people like, get, like, very surprised when they hear I've tried, like, conventionally white things, like, afternoon tea and stuff, or that, like, I know who, like, yeets is or something, and then they just... I know the way the way white people uh, deal with this stuff. It, it gets it's very it's very interesting. Like you can just see the befuddlement in their eyes of, of like, <laughs> wow, you know, I may just be as educated as as you. <laughs> so like, it just uh, it get it get it's it's quite fascinating to just watch them uh, grapple with that concept. I feel like so many people, again, belonging to marginalized groups do face these microaggressions at Durham. And again, because people don't really seem to find them offensive, which is really infuriating unless they're from 
that particular oppressed group? Like, is there any, have you guys faced the same, like, similar experiences yet? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'd say definitely within the context of my uh, experience in the Durham Union Society, which is not the most progressive of organisations by a fucking country mile, I'd say microaggressions were a thing on a very near daily basis stretching to macroaggressions like stuff like like just deliberately like well i'd say i wouldn't say deliberately but like very negligently getting a poc's names wrong and stuff stuff like that uh misgendering people even though like we've been saying even though like i said my pronouns were they them like over a thousand times or something and they just, you know, they ignore it. I was like, oh, sorry, and then continue uh, joking about colonialism, joking about, like, racialized jokes and all of that. Those, uh, you know, there was points in which the microaggressions, the scale and degree of them, well, like, as in the number and degree of them, they became very, very macro, particularly within the context of those societies and those vastly overprivileged uh, groups who think that they are very much smarter than they actually are and, to, and like they feel very entitled to like say to like say you know I've gotten I've not got a racist bone in my body or you know I'm colorblind stuff like that and then continue to live their life in a very privileged manner and continue to uh, act very um, very microaggressively without being checked on without ever like being held to account for it or even or getting super fucking defensive when they do get called out for it and stuff so yeah that's been it that that was a very big constant in my life I guess yeah I mean I think that like a lot of times people react very defensively when you point out something that they've done that's been racist because like like I said racism has become something that's so demonized and so like um, like let's just not talk about it because this is such a like horrible thing to do or like such a horrible thing to be when the fact is that we live in a system that is racist and it's not surprising in fact it's pretty natural that people would have internalized um, some of those harmful and racist sentiments so like even me as like a POC like I'd never say that I'm 100% completely not racist that would be a lie and that would be like completely just um, excusing myself of any responsibility that I might have in you know perpetuating the system or making someone else of another racial group um, feel uncomfortable so I just I think that like I think that especially white people but really everybody needs to sort of shed the idea that like oh, because I have friends that are POC or because, you know, I really, really don't think of POC people as, like, as, as lesser beings. Therefore, I'm completely not racist. Like, that's just not true. You, you could have, like, racist ideas or, or sort of racist sentiments without even realising it. Yeah, I feel like a lot of that is very... A lot of the things that people say to sound woke are actually just so performative and you can always tell the difference for sure yeah, yeah definitely 100 percent. like i know so many people who are quite outwardly racist or like who have you know like used a lot of microaggressions whether they're white or not and um i you know i see them posting about black lives matter on instagram and i'm like really like where is this coming from like it's obviously to look woke on instagram and to like portray yourself in a certain light and it's just so infuriating to like see people pretend yeah no definitely i'd hard agree that like when durham university was posting their black squares and stuff and i'm like really really you <laughs> you who's like have done literally nothing to help the students of color at this university and like protect their safety and stuff you're posting a black square and i'm just like just it just needs to stop the co-opting of like anti-racism and liberation movements just for like white people's clout is just firstly it's it's fucking entitled secondly it's just like it's so damaging because it just it centers the people that we're probably trying to fight against and like it centers their narratives and that comes at the cost of pushing everyone else out yeah i think there's a huge difference like like it's all right to be like, oh, I've recognized that I am a historically racist institution or I belong to a historically racist 
group or organization or country or culture. And I want to be better and I want to, you know, learn things and improve myself and be a better ally. Like, I think that's fine. But there's a line to draw between that, like actual improvement and acknowledgement and very performative, tokenistic kind of like, oh yeah, let's post the black square. Uh, but we're not actually going to really talk about how black people are being treated um, within this organization. You know, we're not going to talk about like what has our organization done to like help or harm um, black people or people of color. No, I definitely agree with that. Yeah. Like just the fake work stuff just needs to stop. If you want to be an ally, just put the work in. If not, then just keep your mouth shut, I guess. Yeah, so last year, the LGBT Association, you know, um, we did a little survey and one thing that came up quite often was LGBT POCs saying that, you know, people had said to them, oh, you must be so oppressed in your home country or like, oh, if you belong to this uh, racial or cultural group, um, you know, it must be so hard to be LGBT. You know, what do you guys think about that? Do you have any sort of experiences or opinions about it? I mean... It, I think that's just white savior complex in a nutshell, right? I think, like, well, firstly, like, um, I think my experiences are a bit different because, like, my my home country is London, so. But I do think it's um it's it's very white savior complexy. I think like, the idea that POCs or like countries with higher uh, rates of people of color in them are inherently just are inherently homophobic is just nonsense. Because firstly, firstly and foremostly. A lot of this homophobia just comes from colonialism, right? Because, like, for example, my mother's state of India, like, we've had historically very gender diverse and very um, sexuality diverse um, identities in pre-colonial times. Like, the idea of, like, hijras and stuff, which were, like, uh, non-binary or non-gender conforming gender, were, like, they were pretty well accepted in India until the British census came along and were like, yeah, no, that, that, that's, um, that's a degenerate thing to do and stuff. So like, definitely I'd say it's, it's very, it's ahistorical, it's condescending and it's very white savior complexy. But again, mm-hmm. that's just my take from a, uh, from a home student. So. Yeah, for sure. Like, um, again, I was mentioning this to someone the other day, like we had an exchange program with a school from London, actually, sorry, um, like about three years ago, I think, with my school. And um, I remember them coming, um, I remember them coming up to one of my friends and saying, oh, like, I'm so surprised that you guys, you know, speak this way. I'm so surprised that you've, like, as, as Anne said, like, consumed so much Western media and and things like that and it was really shocking to all of us because we're like yeah obviously like this is I mean it's what we've grown up with and this is just kind of like our whole society has like our whole culture has really been anglicized since colonialism and you know while you can't blame any type of you know bigotry or prejudice on oppression alone you can't really deny that like it does like these things do have their roots in colonialism so it would be it would be really nice for like white people to kind of acknowledge that because there's always this this notion i think of like you know like we shouldn't be blamed for what our ancestors did but you're still profiting off of it in so many ways and you know, if you can't realize that, then you really do need to educate yourself. And no one's attacking white people when they say that. I think that's also like this overriding notion that does exist when you talk about racism, um, you know, in, in most circles. But like, no one's attacking you because I feel like if you're really trying to learn whether or not you're a you're white whether you're a poc like it like regardless of your racial identity like we are all trying to unlearn thousands of years of rhetoric so i feel like we're all kind of we're all just trying literally that 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 was so like that was so well put um yeah so i am from singapore which is a country that was colonized by the british and uh just like a quick crash course on it and i think most like countries that were colonized. Um, Basically, there is a part of our penal code um, called Section 377A, which criminalizes gay sex between, you know, two men. So it's a punishable offense. But a lot of people try and say like, oh, it's not that bad because people don't actually 
uh, go to jail or aren't actually prosecuted based on this law. But obviously the fact that it's there is symbolically pretty horrible and that like really sets a precedent for like the kind of culture towards LGBT people um, in Singapore. You know, it's really like that has like the fact that it's part of our law has been used by a lot of homophobic um, hate groups in Singapore as like a justification of why they are right and why they have like a right to go around, um, you know, spewing like hatred and vitriol. So the interesting part is that part of our penal code, well, I think most of it really, uh, but I have to fact check, um, was introduced by the British and uh, we have since not got rid of it, but it's the fact that like it wasn't there before. So like many, many countries that were colonized by the British have had to basically do the legwork, uh, scrapping away that and sort of dismantling the like conservative, um, very like heteronormative sort of culture that the British brought over, like what Yash said. Um, I do feel like a lot of people are very, very ignorant of that. And like a lot of people see like criticism of like colonization as like a criticism of the UK as a whole, which is just like so not true. Like that's, I'm not trying to attack anybody like or like a country or like an entire like group of people. It's just, we have to acknowledge that that was a thing that, you know, um, it really eroded a lot of local cultures in the countries that were colonized and it brought, it brought forward quite a lot of harmful ideas and, you know, harmful practices. But yeah, I think there is a point where maybe like we have to stop blaming colonization for sure. We have to acknowledge it's like huge, huge part in it. But at the same time, it's kind of like, at the risk of demonizing POC cultures, like what exactly is it that has been stopping us from progressing forward in terms of like LGBT views? Again, like I'm the first person to kind of jump at my school because <laughs> I really do feel like um, just the education that we received was not nearly diverse enough because the whole culture is so anglicized, including the literature. I feel like our school didn't do nearly enough to kind of erase those roots because we were constantly told to speak in English. We were constantly told um, to just to do things that were just to kind of conform to a very like anglicized culture. And I feel like for that reason, we did internalize a lot of it. And so, you know, we do it to other people in turn, because again, like I've spoken about earlier, like, like, independent thinking was not really encouraged and that goes back to the whole age hierarchy thing that I was talking about but I do feel like everything does stop with you know just educate children properly there was there was not nearly enough of that and I feel like that would have made such a difference to you know my views in school especially because I feel like they have progressed over the years but like my views five years ago would have been a lot more close-minded and I say that like fully acknowledging how wrong that is but it's just true. I'd say very much in like the development of like personal politics and personal opinions yeah obviously like I guess the older you get the more um very much the more you stop listening to the people around you and start listening to like the world around you um I'd say yeah obviously you're uh political opinions are, are allowed to change and like it's very fair it's very it's 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 a really good thing like like to not be the same person or not have the same opinions that you had like five years ago because like you know unless you're living under a rock like things will have changed like new information will have come across like your perception on like identities that previously were erased are now like in the mainstream and like yeah, like, learning to accept them is just a part of the process. I'd say very much, like, obviously, like, if you are harmful, if you perpetuated harmful things, you know, back when you are, back, like, in the past, or you, like, um, or you disseminated harmful resources or had harmful opinions and such, yeah, you should definitely, like, acknowledge them. You should, you know, uh, take responsibility for the harm caused and apologize. But like, I, I'm very much in terms of like changing opinions. Yeah, you definitely should. And definitely like in this like increasingly politically partisan world we live in right now. Uh, I say that in the context of <laughs> this fuck all election. Um, 
uh, yeah, it's a very, it's a very good thing. And it's becoming an increasingly rare thing to like change your perspective on something or someone or like an ideology. And it's something we should definitely embrace like as a culture and like not seek to reject people who've historically had incorrect opinions or like opinions that were just outright wrong, but are now like changing their perspective and are now, um, becoming more and more open-minded so yeah I definitely that's that's my two cents I guess yeah for sure that has like a lot to do with like um I don't know how much you guys use like Tumblr and Twitter and like other forms of social media but like a lot of people have been talking recently about like cancel culture um you know like once someone's done something wrong or problematic (laughs) you know they're just kind of like cancelled and it's quite like that concept is quite abstract isn't it because it's like in what way are they cancelled like are are we just gonna like you know like isn't it more important that we kind of like educate people um or you know like let people know where they've sort of gone wrong or let them realize themselves where they've gone wrong rather than be like i'm never gonna listen to this person ever again and i'm not gonna let them say anything ever again yeah i think people also tend to ignore the fact that it's so hard to cancel a heterosexual white male celebrity in the first place like no matter how hard you try some people saying you know I'm gonna abstain from like watching this show or reading this book or you know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna like financially contribute to this person's platform isn't really fully cancelling them because there's millions of other people who will. So I feel like people tend to take that to an extreme. But having said that, I do think that like cancel culture is wrong. I feel like, you know, if if someone does openly come out and say that they've made a mistake, they, they, you know, if they acknowledge the fact that they've made a mistake and they say that they want to learn from it, I feel like people with the platform should be allowed to do so, especially because they have that platform. And realistically, you can't afford to let go of people who are who do have that type of platform and are willing to change because they're the ones who, you know, can make that change easily. And if they do learn from their mistakes, I don't see the harm in letting them do it. Mm, yeah, I think another perspective on it is just like what you what you mentioned earlier, like it's almost like it's almost kind of like irresponsible or like a cheap sort of way out to be like, oh, I cancel this person. Like, we're just never going to acknowledge this person um, without, you know, kind of realizing that they're so influential that you can't really quote unquote cancel them, can you? So like one example that I have talked about so much recently is uh, JK Rowling, like uh, with Harry Potter. Um, Like, I mean, obviously like her views are harmful and like incredibly toxic and just like incredibly like misinformed too but it's like if we say that oh you know I I, I cancel her that completely just sort of negates and ignores the fact that she's a billionaire author who's sold like millions of copies of books and she is not going to stop having an influence just because you stop reading Harry Potter like she's still there and we need to acknowledge and talk about her views and just like her views in general and why they're so prevalent and why people still kind of buy into it yeah yeah I feel like with JK Rowling as well just because obviously she hasn't apologized she's done the opposite she's you know she's perpetuated her views like her very harmful toxic ideologies in other ways through her writing through the essay that she published a while ago so I feel like I don't really think she she is going to take a step back from you know, from her stance on things like trans rights or anything. Um, So in that case, obviously, it is really harmful because she has such a massive platform. She has so, so much influence and she's doing these horrible things with it. But again, like, like you said, like, there's really not much that you can do to cancel her, which is a shame. So I feel like call out culture would probably be a more effective kind of route. You know, you call this person out, but cancelling them is not really realistic when they're in that position of privilege and power. Yeah, I definitely, like, I'd say especially with, like, J.K. Rowling, like, 
she's a billionaire. At the end of the day, if people stop reading her books, she's still a billionaire. Like, the damage has been effectively done. Um, I'd very much say it's in terms of, like, combating these people, especially in terms of, like, when cancel culture targets the incredibly rich and powerful, I'd say, like, yeah, in terms of, like, putting out resources and educating the wider population as much as possible is a far better strategy because at the end of the day, like, they're rich, they're educated, they they have access to things that, like, we can't, that we, that, like, ordinary people don't. So they have the ability to educate themselves and yet they do not. So, like, at the end of the day, like, trying to appeal to, like, their money or their platform or anything like that is, is, isn't going to be realistic nor effective. At the end of the day, we just, what we need to do is mitigate their harm by putting out the actual truth of the matter and, like, you know, that trans people are real, that, like, trans people have rights, that non-binary is a very legitimate and valid identity. And so, like, in terms of, like, comp- it's about, like, harm reduction and mitigation as opposed to, like, punishing this individual for having their opinions, right? Like, I mean, you can choose to, like, disassociate with them as much as possible. Like, that's your prerogative. I'm not sure what, like, good it will do in the longer run. But, like, at the end of the day, uh, we this shouldn't turn into, like, vindictive personal attacks because the bigger picture is that, like, people are buying into what JK Rowling is saying and we need to work fucking hard to counter that. (laughs) And yeah, like the buck doesn't stop at JK Rowling. It's about countering all of turfdom and that toxic poisonous ideology in and of itself. And like, (laughs) and like if we center it around JK Rowling, like obviously there are going to be like the diehard Harry Potter stands is going to be like, yeah, no, she's, she's our mother Teresa or whatever. So like, it's it's very much about combating those toxic ideas with education and shit, not just being, uh, and not just engaging in this weird petty politic of like you know X individual is is now a toxic brand because like I mean fine but at fine like whatever but at the end of the day they're still a billionaire they've they've still got their resources like yeah you're not you're not going to do much damage there I'm afraid. Yeah, it's so like, it's so reductionist to be like, oh, JK Rowling, just because she happens to be the main baddie turf right now, is the only turf, right? Because like, turf ideology is just so incredibly like prevalent, and it's more common than it should be. But it's not just like a JK Rowling problem. It's like, uh, what, where has, say, like, maybe feminism or like, the LGBT community gone wrong in that there are so many turfs, like, what can we as a society do to kind of dismantle the culture that births these turfs, uh, for lack of a better word. Uh, But, you know, sorry to keep going on about it. I just really think it's fascinating, you know, like, um, JK Rowling, thinking about, like, death of the author sort of stuff. Um, But one thing I thought was really interesting is that after she sort of blew up as being, um, you know, a huge transphobe, Um, A lot of people finally started talking about an issue that I've noticed for like a while um, that, you know, JK Rowling's books, while entertaining, aren't actually very, aren't actually very culturally sensitive. Like, um, I mean, just one example, like, I don't know how much you guys have read of like Harry Potter, but just one example is that, you know, she's got a character called Cho Chang, which firstly, isn't an actual East Asian name. Mm -hmm. Um, that's just two surnames kind of spliced together. And, you know, the character doesn't really have any, like, sort of outstanding personality traits um, of her own. She's just kind of like a sort of crutch that J.K. Rowling uses to push, like, development of other characters, mostly other white male characters. So, yeah, I just thought it's interesting how bigotry tends to intersect, doesn't it? Yeah, I fully agree with Yash when he says that, like, it is a far better strategy to then educate people and then engage with like media critically rather than like, you know, attempting to cancel these like incredibly powerful figures. And also just on the side now, I was going to say, I do feel like when you use the word, like when you use the term turf, I don't really feel like they should kind of be given the title of like feminist at all, because I feel like it's just so anti-feminist just inherently that like even calling them feminists just sounds 
sounds wrong because like the trans community has done so much for like feminism as a whole and then you know getting all of this hatred and like being excluded in return is just really shitty but sorry i know that we're pressed for time so um just to wrap up yesh we're gonna ask you what is your gay agenda uh, my gay agenda i'd say definitely for durham i'd say it's very much draining the white narrative from queerness i'd say it's putting black brown uh disabled you know neurodivergent faces into queerness as much as possible like we're done with the with the idea that you know being the camp like tory white guy from surrey is is the only acceptable standard of being queer right now like it's it's all our faces that's coming out it's all our stories it's all our experiences you know it's it's our narrative and and that's that that is my that is my agenda our thanks to Anne, shivani and yash for their help in recording this podcast and their insights about the intersectionality between race and lgbt plus identities to see more from the LGBT Plus Association's Campaign for Intersectionality Awareness, look for our posts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Durham Trans Association is also holding elections soon for the positions of President, Steering Officer, and Finance Officer. These positions need to be filled for the Trans Association to run again and meet the needs of trans students in Durham University. If you self-identify as trans, we encourage you to find the details of how to run on the Durham Trans Association Facebook page. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and see you in the next episode of The Gay Agenda. Purple Radio Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio Podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.